This is Legislature's The Inside Story. Thank you for listening. I'm the host, Tim Story, CEO of the National Conference of State Legislatures, NCSL. My guest is David Adkins, the Executive Director and CEO of the Council of State Governments, or CSG. The organization that David oversees works with all three branches of state government, including legislatures, and their goal, much like NCSL, is to empower those in state government through collaboration, research, and technical assistance so that they can excel in serving the people in their states. I talked with David about his lifelong interest in politics and government, and how his parents, a dad who was a Kansas state trooper and a mom active in Republican politics, stoked that passion. David reflected on the changing nature of American politics during his time in the Kansas State House and over the last 15 years running CSG. We talked about civility and how to foster it and the increasing value of nonpartisanship and credible organizations that can support those who work in state government. David Atkins, I've really been looking forward to having you on the podcast. I mean that sincerely. Thank you for making some time for me today. Well, Tim, it's great to be with you. You know, we've been doing this for a year or so now, and and I have to go into some detail about who we're talking to, but this is not something we have to spend a lot of time on. I think you are well acquainted with the legislature world and legislative staff, legislators, and that's what this is about, sort of trying to bring this back to that unique ecosystem in the world. So I don't have to do a whole lot of that, but that's why I want you on the, you know, one to have a conversation is that you do have this terrific history uh, with with legislatures, and now you you've got this uh, you know important key role in in uh, guiding the nation's uh, state governments. How did you get here? We have to go back to the plains of Kansas. Uh, my dad was a Kansas Highway Patrol officer, and I grew up just incredibly proud of him and the uniform he wore. As a result of that, when a tornado hit our town, the governor would be in the car with him, and he would be showing the governor the damage when. Um, Dwight Eisenhower passed away. Abilene was just the next town over, and my dad would be in charge of security, and uh, President Nixon would be there. My mom was very involved in Republican politics. At that time, Kansas elected a governor every two years, and so she was one of those local volunteers. And I can remember playing with my matchbox cars on the on the carpet of a law office when she'd be making calls to get people to come out to vote or to get a yard sign. In some ways, I was around state government because my dad had a nonpartisan role. My mom was involved in politics, and and I was a Boy Scout who who loved all of that. I couldn't catch a football or or hit a tennis ball, but politics became kind of the sport that I grew up with. Uh, Bob Dole was a fixture in our state and somebody that I got to see and know. He visited my sixth grade class, and so I I don't know politics just kind of was in my blood early. Uh, you know, I ran for Boy State governor and was elected and was my high school student body president, my college student body president. I just loved, I loved the process of politics. And so when I graduated from law school, I had clerked at a law firm founded by a former governor of Kansas. Five years in, I became a partner and the state representative in the, the district that I lived in said that he was leaving the legislature. And I thought, well, okay, now's the time to try to run. That was in 1992. I have to say that it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. You make absolutely no money. You make incredible sacrifices. Your family has to give up a lot, but I wouldn't trade the education and the experience that I had, uh, the friendships that were forged. It was it was a great experience. And that led you to CSG. I was active in CSG, attended NCSL meetings as well. I became a regional chair of CSG. It's one of the unique aspects of our organization is that we have four regional components. When it was Kansas's turn to host the Midwestern Legislative Conference in a very 
circuitous way, I, I was selected to be the chair or the nominee from Kansas. I was a toll fellow, one of our leadership development programs. After I left the legislature, I'd been an executive vice chancellor or, or vice chancellor at the University of Kansas um, Medical Center for about five years. And this job came open. I loved what I was doing, but some people suggested I had to apply for it. And it's one of those great situations where when you don't need a job, you approach the search process in a way that I think is kind of liberating. And um, when it ultimately came down to being a finalist, have a visit with your family to say, are we going to do this? And my wife was willing to take the jump. And that was almost 15 years ago that we moved to Lexington, Kentucky and started this job. Talk about CSG just generally for a minute or two, uh, you know, make sure everybody understands exactly what it's all about. Yeah, CSG is one of those things that it, it can be whatever it needs to be for the people who plug into it in in the ways in which they want to connect to it, which makes it really difficult to say in a, in a succinct sentence, what's our brand? But if I had to say, in a nutshell, we were founded in 1933 by a former senator from Colorado, Henry Toll, who brought together a group of friends initially as part of the National Legislators Association, and then that morphed into the Council of State Governments. In its early years, it actually was created in statute in most states as sort of an intergovernmental interstate affairs commission that was designated in each state, and they participated in the council. Uh, you can imagine in 1933, the worst year of the Great Depression, there, there wouldn't have been interstate highways. A long-distance phone call would have been very expensive. But the nation was confronting one of its greatest challenges with the Great Depression. And my guess is state governments at that time would have been fairly nascent. They would have been small in scope and, and power, but they had a lot to learn from each other. And so I think this confluence of states getting together and talking about solutions probably led to a lot of the kinds of developments that later would have the federal governments and states working to you know, address the, the real challenges of the Great Depression. As federal power grew, the organization morphed into trying to be a voice for the states. But when it's all said and done, what we try to do is much like what NCSL tries to do. We, we connect, we engage, we inform, we seek to inspire and ultimately empower state officials in all three branches of government, both elected and appointed, to solve problems and do that in a nonpartisan way. And that continually evolves and adapts to the priorities that our members have. Like NCSL, we're supported by state dues. States pay us a dues that are, you know, create the foundation upon which our organization is built. But ultimately with grants and foundation support, we're a 50 million plus annual budget with 300 employees across the, across the nation. And you bring together, but also the judicial branch, right? And in the executive branch, as well as legislative branch. Uh, so that three branch is really fundamental because uh, I've heard you you know talk about that in a number of times. We we actually have as our sweet spot this idea that it's it's unique and rare, but when executive branch officials, judicial branch officials, and legislators get in the same room, there is a synergy that is created that we think accelerates the ability to craft solutions that are meaningful and efficacious. It's it's remarkable how in the course of being in a state capital, if you're in a legislative role, your interactions with the judiciary are very seldom. And frankly, in many cases, your interactions with the executive branch are mainly in an oversight function. You, there's not many chances where you sit down and say, here are the issues. What, what, what do we need as separate and equal branches of government to, to try to bring what we can bear to the solution? You think about just any number of issues from 
sort of mass incarceration, to the foster care system, to uh, the fentanyl crisis. Uh, those all have executive, judicial, and legislative engagement that is required to, to craft solutions. We've seen, particularly through our Justice Center, how bringing together those state officials to focus on criminal justice and public safety issues can be really effective. Founded in 1933, you know, your 100th anniversary is not that far away. But, of course, the world has changed a lot, right? No interstate highway system. Now we have, you know, the Jetsons phone. You can video call somebody in a, in a nanosecond, and not just in the United States, but all over the world for the most part. Information is is overwhelming, is vast. There's an ocean of information, right? So um, like in CSL, I mean, I'm sort of asking because I know how I would take this question, but like, why do we still need CSG and NCSL both, right? And, and times have changed so much from a time when you basically couldn't get together much at all. It was just really a, a days-long effort. How are we still backing up legislatures in, in this world? Yeah, it's, it's Tim, I reflect on the, the building I'm setting in now, which is the CSG headquarters building in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, we started in Chicago, but moved to Kentucky when the Commonwealth said, you know, come come here, we'll build you a building. And that was 1969. And I remember when we renovated this building, huge spaces of it were dedicated to libraries and secretarial pools. Uh, I would say probably at least half the building was was a library where hard copies of reports were necessary. And that was the only place states could get that kind of comparative analysis. I always say that, uh, particularly among legislators, the questions that that's always on their mind is, what are other states doing? And how is my state compared to those other states? And what can I learn from those other states that will help me do it better in my state? So, you know, there's Google for that now in many instances. So I think some of the strengths that, that CSG leans into are certainly camaraderie and, and the ability to bring people together in a nonpartisan way where they can be vulnerable. They, they are in a safe space we aren't trying to sell them something. We're not trying to advocate to them. We really are uh, facilitating a network of self-supporting public servants who are people of purpose, who have a passion for public service, and they, they're hungry to get together and commiserate, to learn from each other. I've always said that we, we put on great conferences, but oftentimes it's the conversations they have next to each other on a bus going from one place to another where they're digging into what are you doing about fuel taxes in your state? And what did you do about fentanyl in high schools in your state? Or I hear you're doing a, a drug court. What's that all about? And it's that camaraderie, that sense of we're in this together. And, and oftentimes my own experience with CSG or NCSL was I, was I was often in rooms and I didn't know who was a Democrat or a Republican and I didn't care. Some of my best friends that, that emerged from my participation in CSG would be people that weren't politically aligned with with my you know my particular positions at that time but it didn't matter and i still think there's the humanity uh, seeing the humanity in public servants and giving them a place where they can come together is really the 
sacred calling of our organizations. Now, I would also argue that the complexity of public policy issues has grown exponentially. If you think about, so how are we going to address climate change or weather resiliency? How do you figure out issues like gun violence and what are appropriate responses given all of the inputs and demands? And and all of those things you talked about, the speed of communication, social media, it just increases the stakes or apparently increases the stakes for the space that legislators have to to craft solutions and to think about these issues. I actually think that if we can provide them with trusted guidance and and information that is properly curated and reflects their priorities, we're not feeding the disinformation machine. We're not part of the echo chamber. I think there's a certain credibility that when NCSL checks in on something or CSG checks in on something, it has a certain stamp of credibility in in state capitals. And that's something we protect, as I know you do, very passionately. Glad you mentioned that. I've been thinking about this exact thing, which is that we are steadfastly bipartisan and nonpartisan. In some ways, we have characteristics of both. You know, we have partisans who are active and we serve people from the far, far right ideologically to the far, far left, just as you do. One of these incredibly complex questions that's confronting all states and society is uh, what is the truth, right? Because now with deep fake videos, you know, the notion you can see something and your eyes will, it, it deceives the eyes. And I, you know, this is an area where they're, they're, the states are going to have to step in and start to legislate what the truth is, you know, because so what's evidence in court? When you can, you know, you can create a video that looks like anything and not you don't have to be a Hollywood producer with an unlimited budget to create fake video and, and information and, and audio for that matter. So or documents, <laughs> you know, so these are the kinds of things we have to figure out. I, I was with five legislative leaders uh, yesterday and all former leaders actually were doing a panel and they talked about this notion of like we, we're, we're getting into a narrow, narrow group of trusted sources. Um, because everything has spin, uh, you know, every media outlet feels like there's more spin. They're 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 kind of leaning left or right more than ever. So this notion that our organizations are maybe more important than ever, uh, as long as we keep the firewalls up uh, to maintain that, you know, trusted source information that's just information. Um, so I'm glad to hear you echo that. Yeah, we've been uh, both of our organizations have been blessed to have leaders who understand that their role in our organization is not the same role that they play in the political milieu of their legislatures. They, they have the ability to, to work at a higher level of consensus and, and comedy that, you know, allows pluralism to emerge from conversations on issues that frankly aren't that partisan. Now, the politicalization of every issue is, is certainly a challenge, but as you know, the vast majorities of what what legislatures and state governments do to govern really isn't a Democrat or Republican, a conservative or progressive, right or left kind of an issue. And so there's there's still a huge issue set around which I think people can come together and learn from each other. I do think, though, that I, I absolutely agree with you. Artificial intelligence, you know, the whole surveillance state, whether the Chinese are looking in on us on TikTok, uh, or a balloon in the sky, or uh, the ways in which our data and information, our preferences, our likes are all harvested and then monetized. State legislatures are just now starting to really try to determine where can those lines be drawn between people's privacy and, and commerce and all the ways we 
as as individual citizens value our privacy, but so willingly surrender it just to have access to some site on the, on the internet. You add to that artificial intelligence and the ways in which you know we talked about having this library of things, and then Google came along, and now the legislators may be able to say into an app, give me three pages of testimony on a certain bill and it will automatically be created. And what it does is it just goes out and scrapes the internet so that to the extent that disinformation or misinformation is out there, it will be incorporated into those products. And that's where I think, I think equipping citizen legislators with a greater capacity for discernment, a greater capacity for curiosity you know, competence in curiosity, understanding how to truly understand rather than than vilify or how to overcome polarization by seeking to really, to use good conflict to help resolve public policy challenges rather than just buying into the high conflict of vilifying your political opponents. I, I think that's a skill set that in today's world we can't take for granted. The, the default will be to go back to your tribe uh, to to lean into the echo chamber, and there will be a certain base of voters that that is always susceptible to to the litmus test of are you one of us or are you not. But we're smart enough to know that complex problems don't get solved in that space, and that you know articulating grievances isn't a political strategy that that ultimately results in in governing. Uh, it may be successful in the short term politically, and and I think our organizations are that place where you know. Uh, the people who participate with us aren't screaming into the wind. They're actually interested in the art of governing. And that's where, you know, we read all the stories about this legislator did something that, that made the news or somebody said something that, you know, got them canceled. And the, the press loves to, you know, exaggerate uh, and, and elevate those. But as you know, uh, and this is the blessing of, of the positions that we have, we get to work every day with really dedicated, smart public servants that are making tremendous sacrifices to serve their states. But I'm just always amazed at at the talent and passion and commitment that they, they bring to that task. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds sycophantish to say it, but if if in my role I can help celebrate those those unsung heroes that are just getting the job done, uh, that are focused in, in an ethical way, with integrity, to really serve the people who put them in, in uh, the state capitol. Well, that's that's a role that I relish that, that does take me back to those days when I was in grade school and my mom was involved in politics and I had the chance to be exposed to, to leaders that I admired and respected. I want to, to bring this back to a couple things. One, I don't think I'm going to insult any of my listeners or uh, all the, you know, the legions of fans of this podcast when I say... Um, this this civility thing is real, and you touched on it. It's one of the five things you touched on that I'd like to go deeper on. I'm becoming more aware of the distortion that political consultants are putting into their lives. There's a consultant class that has grown, I think, sort of quietly in a way because they do work a little bit in the shadows. And we've always talked about these purveyors of the dark arts of campaigns and that, but but I think their power has grown and they've really discovered legislatures because there's money there, right? I mean, these are the, the campaigns and the money they're raising to run, you know, for a seat in the legislature is, just seems like it's going up way faster than inflation. So there's, and then the consultants come in and say, uh, yeah, scorched earth, that is, that's strategy one. And then strategy two is double scorched earth. 
And, and then it, it takes real leaders to say, I'm not going to send that mailer. Uh, you know, it may be technically true, but I'm not going to destroy this, this, this person on the other side. Well, Tim, I think all we, all we have to do is look to Washington and recognize that there is a natural tendency for politics to be on a pendulum. So I'm, I'm not a person who engages in a lot of hand-wringing, worried that the demise of democracy is upon us. But I do believe that we always have to be vigilant about our institutions. And I know that NCSL and CSG has as part of its sort of sacred mission, this idea that we're advocates for the institution of state legislatures. We saw through the pandemic, real ability to to call out innovations and champion the ways in which legislatures were innovating during that time period. But you, you look at Washington, and I would just tell you a story of my intern in the legislature who ultimately got elected to Congress. He obviously had a much more promising political career than I did, but went off to Washington and was well-liked and and ultimately became a a subcommittee chair on the Appropriations Committee. But he was telling me a story of being called into the whip's office on a Monday morning. They were asking him who he had been hanging out with over the weekend because there had been pictures posted in social media in which he as a Republican had been with a Democrat. And he was seen at, he was seen at a bar with a Democrat. And the rule was anything you say can and will be used against you. And so in the old days, yeah, in the old days, you know, uh, another one of my great friends was uh, Senator Pat Roberts from Kansas. He'd been on the staff uh, of a congressperson for 18 years. Then he was the congressperson for 18 years. Then he was elected to the U.S. Senate. He chaired both the House and the Senate Ag Committees. I visited him at his house in Virginia, and his his wife was from Virginia. His kids grew up in Virginia and went to school in Virginia. His friends were the spouses and members that all had moved to Washington and created a community that they interacted with each other. It's the Orrin Hatch, Ted Kennedy story. They were best friends. And that was possible in a time when you weren't flying to Washington on a Tuesday morning, uh, going to fundraisers every night and flying back to your district on Friday. I, I see a, a convergence of several forces that, that concern me. One is that we celebrate the states, as Brandeis said, as the laboratories of democracy. We truly believe that in this 50-state system of sovereign states coming together to create a, a federal union, that there is the opportunity for innovation and, and discovery that is unparalleled in any other nation. And it's one part of American exceptionalism, that, that each state has the ability to chart its destiny around a set of issues that is reserved exclusively for that state. Now, as federal power has grown and and the ability of states to chart their destiny has been diminished by coercive federalism, some aspects of the laboratories of democracy have given way to sort of federal preemption and mandates. But I, I believe that that still exists in many ways. Now, what worries me is that with the gridlock that's in Washington, there's now a, a real heightened interest in what's going on in state legislatures. And with that, sort of the tendency is towards nationalizing every issue, bringing money in from national groups into state legislative races. And, and I worry, and I know that some scholars have studied this, but that it, under, it undermines the, the sort of leeway that any state has to be this laboratory of democracy, to innovate and to be unique in addressing a particular problem and, and then being able to compare, well, how did, a, how did Massachusetts deal with a problem compared to how did Arizona deal with a problem? that sort of learning from each other uh, that takes place, the harvesting of the knowledge of the laboratories of democracy is, is undermined when, 
when essentially the legislative agenda of every state becomes the same because the national interests with their money flowing into these legislative races undermines that creativity. And then candidates, they understand they're going to they're going to be interested in getting donors to help support their campaigns. And with the media that's required to be elected, you know, these these campaigns, when I ran, you know, you might have twenty thousand dollars would be a lot in a house race. And now it's not uncommon for a state Senate race to be a million dollar, a multi-million dollar campaign. Tim, I'll tell you, when I was in the legislature, uh, it was 1996, and we'd gone through a process to reform juvenile justice in Kansas. And I was in the House. I had been appointed by the governor to chair the Kansas Youth Authority. So I had sort of an executive branch role in facilitating a number of stakeholders to put together the proposal. But I can remember we had a huge mini page bill but I co-sponsored that with the um, with the House Minority Leader, uh, who was the the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee uh, for the Democrats. So it it was not unusual to say at the beginning of a session, if I want to get a big bill passed, I need to have two or three major Democrats sponsoring that with me. It it inoculated uh, the politics, and I worry that today maybe that's not so much the case. Well, yeah, story I heard, I won't say the state, I heard from a leader in a medium-sized state yesterday who was saying that, that they're, in this case, it was a, a Republican-dominated state, and but the, the best Democrat in the minority um, had passed, you know, had the best record. They had more bills passed than the rest of the caucus combined. They were all bipartisan, and they actually got, like, I forget what the number was, like 90 pieces of legislation passed, got taken out in the last primary because they had worked too much with the majority party. And and everything that they had done was, you know, probably to good stuff, right? It wasn't wasn't partisan. They weren't, you know, these weren't bills to on on lightning rod issues. These were just good government bills. Okay, so how do we fix it? I don't have any personal pro- policy preferences here, so I want to make sure I have that disclaimer. But I am interested in how open primaries and ranked choice voting uh, will will maybe inoculate some candidates from that being taken out in in perhaps a multi-candidate primary in which a plurality wins and the nominee that wins may just be the person who's able to energize a more extreme element of the base that isn't much interested in governing. I don't know that there's much of a governing dividend in the primary, but I do think it's interesting to look at some of these states where where ranked choice voting or the you know all candidates are put on the same ballot and the the top 4 emerge or the top 2 emerge and they might be from the same party when it's all said and done obviously civic education and getting more people to be engaged in politics is so important to having the the results of elections be an expression of true uh, we the people majority rules but if you look even at our presidential primaries these early states it doesn't take much of a plurality to to be declared the winner of a of a primary and those early states you know you might have 25% of the vote but if you stack that up two or three states in a row in a big field you end up being the nominee for president of the United States uh it it it's over pretty quickly i feel like uh there's a little tide turning i i i get the sense from you know, hardcore Parsons and people in the middle that they're like, we, this thing has gotten too, uh, too far off on civility, on civic discourse, on 
you know, thinking that your opponent, you know, has horns and smells of sulfur because they wore the other team's jersey. And, and hopefully we will, uh, we're, we're making a little turn there, uh, you know. And then you got, you're, you, you, you touched on another thing I, I didn't get back to, this whole notion of how, you know, gosh, we, we've been complaining about the media for 35 years, as long as I've been around this world. And, and, um, and it's like, oh, is it worse or better? But, God, they do pluck out that viral moment or the one member who says something stupid. And now that's got a chilling effect. All our members are, you know, they're worried about becoming, you know, tomorrow's uh, meme. And, 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 and I think that then inhibits them to asking what they may think is an honest question and a stupid question. That's what we do. We ask a lot of stupid questions. But truly, there are no stupid questions. I mean, it should be OK for a legislator to say, well, you know, help me out here. But now they're all kind of frozen a little bit by the viral moment. And the and the state house, the state house press corps in so many states have just been decimated. So in their place are 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 in some cases uh, blogs that that have an agenda. In many other cases, and this is where my optimism is: there are emerging nonprofit journalism, civic journalism that, frankly, is covering states in really creative and, and engaging ways. I'm interested in in how that ultimately can sustain and support the best instincts of engagement with government and transparency and accountability. The, the press plays that role, but I can remember very clearly. Now, keep in mind that I served in the legislature when there was no social media at all. I'm not even sure that we were issued laptop computers by the state. I know we didn't have we didn't have smartphones. But I can remember a state house reporter who I had the greatest respect for. He was one of those people that could walk into any committee hearing, be there about 15 minutes, and he could get the peanut. He knew exactly what the peanut was. He'd get the lead out on the AP wire, and every newspaper in Kansas would have a story about what went on in that committee hearing, and then usually a couple of editorials that that flowed from that. Well, this same reporter uh, ultimately left the newspaper, I think took an early buyout, but he was there long enough to see social media come in. And his performance was judged by number of clicks. And when number of clicks determines your, your salary and your performance in a, a newspaper, well, you, you know what you're going to go for. You're going to cover the horse race. You're going to cover the, the most extreme, crazy uh, folks. And there's, there's always going to be that attention-getting narcissist that wants to be the, the flashing red light that frankly just doesn't hold much sway in in the way in which the institution actually does its job. That's what's on my mind. I, I think one of our challenges is to start to convince legislators, stop paying attention to social media. That is not what people really think. Now you're challenging my optimism because this is not a good development, but we'll keep, you know, smart people, smart people will think about this and figure out how to, how to push back on it. And this is where I will say that some of the, some of the isolation of the pandemic, which I think will have lasting and in many cases, you know, fairly negative consequences right now, but the isolation of the pandemic, I think did open up people's scrutiny of the actions of their state leaders and governors were having press conferences daily and people were tuning in to legislative hearings that had gone virtual. And I think both legislators saw a new way of doing business and constituents saw a new way of doing business that I think frankly brought a whole lot of new people into the public square 
in some cases, it may not have been as productive as we'd wanted, but in many cases, it was folks that were hundreds of miles from the state capitol that would never have been able to testify on a bill, never able to offer their opinions, who now were able to do so. And legislators, who because they were isolated from the public, and in many cases, capitals were closed to the public, they felt like they didn't have lobbyists breathing down their neck. And they actually could talk with each other and talk with their constituents. And I don't know what kind of institutional norms, let alone reforms, may emerge from all of that. But I do think it was a, you know, a little glimpse into there might be better ways to do it. And and one of my frustrations as a, a legislator, and particularly as chair, I've, I've chaired the Appropriations Committee, the Taxation Committee, but you're, you're up on this dais and there's maybe two or three rows of people who are sort of looking out onto uh, a sea of chairs when we did have the opportunity for subcommittees or select committees that didn't have a hearing room assigned to them, it was kind of make do, find a conference room. And it was usually a smaller group, but we'd sit around a table or we would share a meal together. It was a public meeting, but but it was still, we were looking at each other. And and I actually think one of the reforms that I would, I would consider is how do we build spaces in our capitals that ultimately impact behaviors in positive ways. You know, Winston Churchill was the one who, after the bombing of Westminster, uh, had the chance to to design the House of Commons. And he wanted to make sure that the opposition was very close to the to the government. In fact, the, the distance between the two leaders is two sword links and a fist. The swords can't touch, but that's as close as you can get without touching your swords. You know, I went to Connecticut. I loved looking at state capitals, but the Senate sits in a circle and Democrats are on one side and Republicans on the other. In a lot of committee rooms, it's Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other. I think there are ways for us to think about just the space in which lawmaking takes place that could have profound impact on on how we think about everyone's standing in that space. There's always going to be the caucuses, you know, the Republicans, the Democrats are always going to have their their time together. Yeah, it's a, these are political institutions. We can't pretend otherwise. I will say it's been 15 years at least since we bemoaned the implementation of strict ethics re- regimens, right? Because it took away the evening gatherings and the, the social glue that held it together. And so it's not like this is a new problem. I, you know, maybe that was sort of the, we mark that as the beginning of, of this era, bringing people together and just understanding like, eh, we're all in the same boat. And, and, and that's the thing. You, you could pull the most lunatic, <laughs> wackadoodle person on any side of the thing. And, and, you know, the one thing they'll almost always have in common is they want their state to be better. And that's what our organizations do. We, we really want the U.S., the states to be better. You know, the majesty of our form of government is really remarkable and so truly revolutionary that for eons, the, the king, the authoritarian ruler, uh, said this is the way it's going to be, and everybody said okay. And power was concentrated in just so few. And I, I know we have so many challenges and issues of concentration of economic wealth and and other equity issues and and systemic concerns that underlie um, some of the reasons that we have yet to achieve that goal of of um, a more perfect union, a a place in which all persons are uh, equal. But this notion that we the people. Uh, are the ones in charge, that the power of the government is derived from the people, and the people elect these legislators, people who live in their neighborhoods, people who, in many cases, uh, go to the state capitol for just 30, 60, 90 days, and then go back and, and live in the communities in which they serve. There's something just majestic to this notion that over time, 
and, and as you know, with each legislature, uh, 25, maybe 30% of the members of that legislature are new, that it's always reinventing itself. It's just remarkable that we don't, you know, we take that for granted, that we don't truly celebrate how remarkable that is. And the fact that we get to be a part of being stewards of that tradition in, in our roles uh, just makes our jobs among the best that I can imagine ever having. And so I love working with you and and with our peers at, at other organizations of, of elected officials, but we have a pretty special role. And I ultimately believe that that the American story is one of always reinvention and, and ultimately moving incrementally, ever so slowly, and in some cases, ever so frustratingly towards that notion of a more perfect union. And if at the end of our careers, we get to look back and say, hey, we, we got to contribute to that in some small way. Well, that's a legacy that a lot to be proud of. The operative word, one of my favorite words is stewards. You know, we get our time. <laughs> you and I have these really incredible, we're both very blessed to have these roles. We can do what we can. We know that there were problems before and we still grapple with those. There will be problems in the future, but we're going to leave these institutions better. And, and you know, we have institutions of our own, CSG and TSL. These are institutions uh, that, that are connected to the legislative institution of democracy. Um, so once again, uh, beautifully said and eloquent in a way, I feel like I will I will always aspire to. Can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, and, and, and bring us home on a really terrific note. Well, Tim, thank you so much. And good luck to uh, everyone listening to this. NCSL and CSG will continue to work together uh, for the betterment of the states. And we look forward to doing that. Absolutely. I've been talking with David Atkins, the executive director and CEO of the Council of State Governments and a friend of NCSL and a friend of mine. Thank you for joining me and David on this episode of Legislatures, The Inside Story, brought to you by NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Story, NCSL's CEO, hosts Legislatures, The Inside Story, where he focuses on leadership and legislatures. The Our American States podcast dives into some of the most challenging public policy issues facing legislators. On Across the Aisle, host Kelly Griffin tells stories of bipartisanship. Also check out our special series, Building Democracy, on the history of legislatures. <music>